0: verses 4, 5, and 6, verses 4, 5, and 6 in the 11th chapter of the book of Numbers. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusty. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic but now our soul is dried away there is nothing at all beside this manner before our eyes as we come back to a consideration of this statement this extraordinary statement It is essential that we should hurriedly remind ourselves of the story, this particular point in the history of the children of Israel. Here they are, they've been brought out of the captivity of Egypt, they'd gone down, you remember, in the time of famine when Jacob was still alive and Joseph was a man of importance down in Egypt, and they'd gone down and they'd settled there. But unfortunately a king arose who knew not Joseph. And he and his people began to become jealous of these children of Israel, and began to maltreat them. They set them impossible tasks. They got them to make bricks without providing straw. They had to gather their own straw, and they lashed them because they didn't produce the right number or produce them quickly enough. They were treated as slaves and as serfs, and they were in a most pitiable condition. But God raised his servant Moses, you remember, and sent him to them. And they were delivered in the most amazing manner which is described in the book of Exodus. And they crossed the Red Sea. Their enemies, attempting to follow them, were drowned in the sea, Pharaoh and his host. And here are the children of Israel now on their way to a promised land, the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. But almost as soon as they would crossed the Red Sea, they began to rebel against God and to grumble. And the result was that instead of going directly to Canaan, they went a roundabout way and were kept in a wilderness for 40 years. Now, the story we are looking at is a story of what one of the things that happened to them in that wilderness. You remember that because it was a wilderness, there was no food there. But God provided food for them. By sending them this manna, in a miraculous manner, bread from heaven, which came day by day. And here they are, eating the manna, and going on their journey. But, you see, we are told that they, like this mixed multitude that was with them, began to lust, and to ask for flesh to eat. And then they look back and they remind themselves of a part of their story in Egypt, you remember, and say, who will give us flesh to eat? We see nothing before our eyes but this manna. Our souls, they say, are dried up within us. Now, I'm calling attention to this episode, this particular story in the long history of these children of Israel because, as I say, we have here such a perfect portrayal and representation of the case of mankind this very evening. The whole story is, is really here. Here's the whole trouble. I'm putting it as a principle, I'm putting it like this, that the real trouble with men and with the world this evening is that men does not realize the cause of his ills, that is, the real explanation of everything else. Let me use the obvious comparison again. You can't hope to apply the right treatment unless you've made an accurate and a correct diagnosis. You can be pouring medicines into your patient, but if your diagnosis is wrong, your patient won't get better. The first thing, obviously, common sense, apart from anything else dictates it. The first thing to do is to discover the cause of our ills. Now, it's because mankind, on the whole, doesn't even want to do that and objects to that and resents its being done that it is as it is. But still more, as I say. The world has never been so busy in treating itself and the nostrums advocated and the panaceas proffered are almost endless, and they're being multiplied year after year. Legislation comes act of parliament after act of parliament. Never have we spent so much money on social services. We've got societies to do every conceivable thing to men, and yet, look at the state of the world. Look at the state of society this evening. Now, I say the whole thing is so tragic because it's so unnecessary. It isn't as if we didn't know what the real answer is because it's been here before us all the years in this book which we call the Bible. That's what the Bible's about. It's not a book of poetry. It's not a a collection of novels. The Bible claims to be a revelation from God about this very thing, about men. What's wrong with him? What alone can put him right? That really is the whole business of the Bible. A lot of history and all sorts of things here, of course. all that's but an illustration. The Bible takes us as we are and it describes the setting. It gives us the genealogies of kings and princes, tells us how they fought with one another, how they got married and had children and died and were buried and so on. Of course, that's all here. That's just the filling out of the picture to show us that it is real life and living. But the message, you see, is one, and it's this. There is only one cause of all our troubles in every generation, and it's always the same cause, and there is only one cure. Now, that's the essence of the biblical message. So, I'm calling attention to these three verses because they do give us the diagnosis in a particularly clear manner. Of course, I could uh, give you endless texts. I, I vary my reading every Sunday night in order to show you how different parts of the Bible are really saying the same thing. But the value of this is that it's, it's a picture which we can't very well forget, can we? We look at these children of Israel and we see them weeping and in their misery and wretchedness and we hear them crying out and saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? Our souls are dried up within us right away now here I say we are given the diagnosis particularly and I've been unfolding it to you I've shown you how we are shown here very clearly that men as the result of sin has become a creature of lust something that suddenly grips him he talks about being master of his fate and captain of his soul, and yet he's the victim of any hoarding or anybody he may meet on the street. He's the slave of sin under the dominion of Satan. Hell-a-lusty. How true it is. Can you give a guarantee of what you're going to be like during a day? You may wake up in a very equable, kindly frame and mood. Can you guarantee me you'll be like that by midnight? No, no. Passions, desires, lust, anger, temper, they come as it were. Ah, oh, they're within us. Men, because of sin, has become a creature of lust, desire, inordinate affection, craving. It's all here. And then last Sunday I was indicating how sin has in a, likewise had a devastating effect upon men's mind. And this, of course, is terribly serious because of the importance of the mind. What a wonderful instrument the mind is. Ah, yes. But because of sin, the mind doesn't function as it should. The Bible says that the sinner is a fool. That's its word. A fool. A foolish man. A man who doesn't think straightly and clearly. And I try to show you how sin affects the mind in various terrible ways. But still, you see, we're not at the end of the story. This is the thing, really, that I, I, I'm, I'm so anxious to bring out, that sin is such a profound thing, so protean in its manifestations. You know, sin has really ruined men. It's ruined the soul. It hasn't merely affected him just in one place. The whole personality has been affected. Body, mind, and spirit Heart understanding everything, the whole man is a ruin and a mass of corruption. That's the biblical statement about men in sin. And so I have to go on with my story. I'm simply looking at these three verses and observing its particular statements, and I see more and more this perfect exact diagnosis of the whole condition of modern men. Now then, look at it. Here are these children of Israel marching on their way to the promised land. And what do I see? I see a picture of misery. The children of Israel also wept again. They're miserable and wretched and unhappy and they're weeping and they're sorry for themselves. They seem to be in a terribly bad case. What's the matter with them? Why are they like this? Look at that miserable crowd. Look at them in their wretchedness and their weeping. Why are they like that? That's the question, isn't it? What's the matter with them? Ah, now then, let's remember that as we're looking at them, we're looking at the modern world also. Look at the modern world. Look at men as he is today. Stand on the street corners of life. And listen to the still, sad music of humanity. Do you hear the wail? Do you see the weeping? Do you see the unhappiness? You see it even in the newspapers, which would have us believe that life is marvelous and perfect and full of joy. And you see these grinning, smiling faces looking at you. But look at the story. Read what's true behind the scenes and see the misery and the unhappiness of it all. The man killed was it last Sunday, and oh, the tragedy, the woman to whom he was going to be married uh, suddenly loses him, and then the next day, the picture of the man's wife who's still alive with the two little children. That's life. The apparent romance, romance, It's misery, it's wretchedness, it's abomination. The world has never been so miserable, so sad, so unhappy. Can't you see the weeping and the wailing? What's the matter with it? It's like these children of Israel there in the desert, weeping again and crying out in unhappiness. I say the question is, what's the cause of it? What's produced it? Why should they be like this? And you know the answer? All our difficulties, all our troubles, all our vexations are of our own creation. We ourselves produce them and are responsible for them. Now then, I must establish that, mustn't I? Well, it's not a difficult thing to establish that. It's all put here in a phrase. Here's the phrase at the beginning of the sixth verse. But now, they say, our soul is dried away, which can be translated like this. Our strength is dried up. That's what they said about themselves. What's it mean? Well, this is their complaint. They said, here we are, marching through this wilderness. And our strength is dried up. We're in a bad state. We're in a bad condition. We've got no energy. We've got no power. Our legs are dragging and they're heavy. Why? Well, because we're underfed. Our nourishment isn't sufficient. Our strength is dried up. Our soul is dried away. Can't we have flesh from somewhere? We're on an inadequate diet. We're not being dealt with fairly. And we're miserable and we're weeping. That's what they said. And what have we to say about that? Well, there's only one thing to say about it. It was a lie. There's no other word that really is adequate. It was just a simple, bare-faced lie. Their soul was not dried up within them. Their strength had not dried up. The manna was an adequate diet. You see, later on, God is able to challenge these people, and uh, there was no reply to make. You will find it in the 8th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. This is how I read. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with the manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that men doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth men live. Now listen, thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell These 40 years, the diet was adequate. There was no deficiency. The vitamins were all present. Their feet had not swollen with scurvy or with anything else. They were fed on manna alone, and yet they were kept perfectly physically fit. There's what God tells them at the end, and they can't dispute it. It's the simple truth. This statement which these men make here is a bare-faced lie. It wasn't true. The diet of manna was adequate and sufficient. Well, then you say, why do they say this? Ah, this is the whole story. Somehow or another, as I've already indicated, you can't say how. these things happen like this. Ultimately, it's the devil. They began to think about it and to talk about it. And the next step was, you see, that they persuaded themselves about it. Now, until they had done that, everything was perfectly all right and they were going on quite well. The manner was quite sufficient. And at first, they were astonished at it all. And so they might have gone on to the journey's end. But somebody, I suppose, one day began to say, what, still manner? Can we go on living on manner? This isn't enough, obviously. And they all began to talk and they persuaded one another. And then, of course, they began to feel ill. Well, all right, I'm very glad you do laugh at it. It's the sort of thing we do, isn't it? Let me show you how ludicrous the thing is, but this is a bit of psychology. You may have done this, some of you, as a prank which you play upon one another, Two or three of you decide to say to a common friend, let's tell him when he comes in that he's not looking very well. And you keep it up and before long the poor man is beginning to feel ill quite definitely. Well now you see that's precisely what mankind as a whole does in sin. Let me give you my final proof for this. Why do you think I read to you of that portion out of the third chapter of Genesis at the beginning? Well, because it is the classical statement of this very thing. Here's the story, isn't it? God made men out of nothing. He then made woman out of the men. And there he places the men and the woman in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. Perfect. Couldn't have been better. What an idyllic life it was. What an ideal life. He just They just had to pick the fruit and eat it. Man didn't have to plow the earth and sow and, and roll and harrow and all the rest of it. He didn't have to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Not at all. He was in paradise. You can't imagine better conditions. Everything was absolutely perfect and men was enjoying it and enjoying his life with God. He had no complaints at all. Everything was really perfect. And then the devil came in. Came into paradise, remember? Came into this perfection. And he said to Eve, look here. You must be absolutely blind. Are you content with a life like this? Do you think this is good enough? Hasn't God said something to you about not eating that tree there in the center? which is the best of all the trees, and he's preventing you. Do you think this is life? Is this really good enough for men? And he began to sow this seed, you remember, and to suggest this. And you see, Eve, believing it, began to feel unhappy. And she began to feel that this life in the Garden of Eden wasn't, after all, what she'd thought it was. Indeed, she began to feel it was very wrong and very miserable. And Adam agreed. They were being kept down. They were hemmed in. They were not being given a chance and an opportunity in the same surroundings. The insinuation was injected and put in, and they accepted it. And they really began to feel miserable. They felt they were not being dealt with fairly. And so they ate of the prohibited fruit. And so, the punishment of God came down upon them. You remember the contrast with paradise, don't you? Cursed is the ground. Man is cursed, he's got to earn his bread now by the sweat of his brow. There were no thorns and briars and thistles there before. They come now, disease enters in, everything goes wrong, and life becomes what it's been ever since. And why did it all happen? Man has brought it all upon himself. And you see how it happened, don't you? It was because he believed the lie about God and about God's way of life. He turned paradise into wretchedness and misery because, I say, he believed this lie. It wasn't true. It was no more true than this statement was true. And that is the whole cause of man's wretchedness And his unhappiness, he brings it all upon himself. Now, let me give you a New Testament counterpart to that. There's a perfect story in the New Testament that says exactly the same thing. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Had you ever thought of it like that? Here, you see, is a father with two sons, obviously people of wealth living in a comfortable atmosphere and surroundings, everything all right. And the father, very happy, and the two boys, quite happy. And so it might have gone on. But one day, you see, this younger boy uh, suddenly got an idea. I don't know where he got it from. It may have been that somebody said it to him. Somebody may have come on to him as the devil came to Eve and said, Look here, do you think that this sort of life is good enough for you? Are you going to spend the whole of your life in this sort of circumstance and surrounding? After all, you've got your father on top of you and your brother. You're the youngest son, remember? Now, there had been no trouble like that before, none whatsoever. They lived a life of love. But the suggestion was put into him, you're being kept down. You know, you're not really having a chance. If I were you, I'd clear out of this. You ask for your share of the estate, and you go across the sea to that new land, and there you'll really do big things and make a name for yourself. Now, he'd been perfectly happy until that moment. But you see, the seed was sown, the insinuation was made, and he believed it. And he really began to feel he was having a very hard time. And he said, I must get out of this. I must really go to some place where I can have scope for my ability. And off he went. And you see, we are given the picture of that poor boy sitting there in the field with the swine and trying to satisfy himself with the husks. That the swine were fed on, wretched, down and out in rags, forsaken, forlorn, miserable, unhappy. Why? Because of the lie that he believed about his father and probably his brother and the life at home. He brought it all upon himself. It was because he said things he shouldn't say about the life he'd been given that all the wretchedness and the misery and the unhappiness follow. There it is, you see. It's given us at the very beginning of Genesis. You find it running right through the Bible. There our Lord pictures it in that peerless parable. My dear friends, what am I talking about? Well, I'm giving you the explanation of why life is as it is at this moment. Do you know why anybody's unhappy and wretched in the world tonight? I'll tell you. It's all due to the fact that mankind has forsaken God and forsaken God's way. It's because mankind has believed that lie and believes there's something better and that God is against us and that God is withholding and that we ourselves can make a better job of it. That's why things are as they are. It's always the same. They began to weep and to cry. They said, look here, our souls are dried up within us. And you can persuade yourself of that and you begin to feel ill and you begin to feel weak and you begin to feel uh, that you've lost your strength and your power and there's something radically wrong with you. But it's all self-suggestion. It's all a lie. It isn't true. Well, of course, accompanying that is the second thing. And the second thing is this. It's because, you see, man doesn't realize that the trouble is in himself and seeks it elsewhere that all this happens to him. Now, take uh, these children of Israel at whom we are looking. It never dawned on these people for a moment that their misery and the thing that made them weep uh, was uh, the cause of all that was really in themselves. That never entered their minds, did it? They never looked at themselves at all. It was their uh, circumstances and so on. They never realized that it was in themselves. Exactly the same with that prodigal once more. He never really examined himself. Ah, the suggestion was it was the father or the brother and so on. And so it never occurred to them. It never dawned upon them that their real trouble was in themselves. In that wrong attitude of God, in that rebellion against God, in that something within them that rises and accepts uh, the suggestion of the devil, uh, this feeling, I say, that God's way is against us and that if we only go our own way, all will be well. They never looked into themselves. Now, that is still the essence of the whole problem, and that in turn leads to certain results, and I just want to hold them before you. What are these results which this dual trouble invariably leads to? Well, the first is, as I've just been hinting, that finding ourselves weeping and miserable and unhappy the first thing we always do is to blame the circumstances. Here we are said these people we are feeling miserable and we haven't got our strength what's the matter with us well it's there's manner it's always manner and there's nothing but manner now if only we had flesh but we haven't got flesh can't somebody give us ah we remember it in Egypt how we ate the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, it was even given us for nothing. We didn't have to pay halfpenny for it, and the cucumbers, and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now? Circumstances. I don't want to keep you with this. But look at yourself for a moment, my friend, and examine yourself. If you're unhappy and miserable, Have you not been saying to yourself, yes, it's that other person? It's these other people. Or it's my conditions. "Ah, I'm like this because of these things that have happened to me. I've never had a chance. Why should God do this to me? Isn't that the tendency? We always blame circumstances as these people blame circumstances. There's wilderness. Nothing growing. No animals can feed here. So there's no flesh for us. How can a man be right and happy and live as he'd like to? Here in this wilderness, it's this wilderness. We must do something about this. Can't somebody do it? Circumstances. Oh. I mustn't stop, I say, at this point. I've made it so often from this pulpit. I'll just put it to you once again in that profoundest bit of analysis I think that Shakespeare ever produced. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. It isn't the surroundings. They were perfect in the Garden of Eden. They were perfect in the home of the prodigal son. God made the world perfect. Ah, it isn't the circumstances, the surroundings, and the conditions. It's not there. It's not the environment. It's man himself. Yes, but you see, that brings me to my second one, which is this. The second consequence of this fundamental error, this believing of the original lie, is that a man is guilty of this complete failure to face and to examine himself. Now, I've tried to show you how these people here, these children of Israel, never did that for a moment. It never dawned on them, you see, that the trouble was in their own hearts. It didn't occur to them to say, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, Why are we feeling like this now? We've been on this manor now for some time. Why didn't we feel like that last week or the week before? Oh, no, they didn't stop to think that. They didn't stop to say, well, now, we are feeling different today. I wonder whether we are feeling different because we are different. That never occurred to them. We are feeling different, they said, because circumstances and surroundings are different. They never looked at themselves. It's still the cause of our troubles. The main trouble with the sinner is that he never looks at himself. He never examines himself at all. Indeed, he resents bitterly any suggestion that he should do so. He regards it as annoying and as insulting. The natural man always objects to preaching about sin. Ah, oh, they say in a world like this, you're surely are not going to spend all this time in analysis and investigation and in holding us up like, "Oh, why don't you tell us about the love of God? They want to rush to the remedy. They dislike sin. Why? Well, it means self-examination. Are you unhappy and miserable and very sorry for yourself? And have you been just blaming other people or things or circumstances and surroundings? Let me ask you a simple question. Have you rarely stopped to examine yourself at all? Hmm? Ah, but we don't, do we? You see, what sin does is this. It makes us protect self. And we are all experts at protecting ourselves. We erect a camouflage around ourselves. We'll go out, we'll invite people in, we'll read, we'll look at this or that, we'll do anything rather than spend an evening with self and really face ourselves honestly. Of course, it's a very painful procedure. I admit it. I agree. It's extremely painful. It's a rather unpleasant sight that any one of us gets when we really look at ourselves in a mirror of truth. And that's why we don't do it. We defend ourselves, and we are experts at it. If somebody makes an accusation, there's always a good explanation. And then, of course, we go on and we pity ourselves. Oh, I like to look at these people here. They're so typical of men in sin. The children of Israel also wept again. They say, I'm having an awful time. What have I done to deserve this? Can't you see yourself? Pity poor me. Nobody understands me. Nobody's kind to me. They're all so selfish and they never think of me at all. Isn't this the language? Oh, how we weep to ourselves and how we coddle ourselves and how sorry we are for ourselves. What a hard time we are having. How cruel life has been to us. Oh, I'm not caricaturing it. God knows we are all guilty of this very thing. We never suspect that our troubles are mainly due to ourselves. You see, the Apostle Paul puts it all so perfectly in the second chapter of his epistle to the Romans, uh, where he says that people who see a thing so plainly and so clearly in others, uh, don't see it in themselves. We spend our time, he says, either accusing or excusing one another. Now we say, look at that man, look what he's doing, and we're doing exactly the same thing. Ah, but we, of course this is different, you know. You see it in the other, and you condemn him. The same thing is true about you, and you don't see it. Take the classical instance of David. David saw that other man's wife, and he coveted her. And he brought about the death of that man. He murdered him in order that he might have his wife. And he thought this was very good. Yes, but God was displeased and he sent Nathan the prophet to him. And Nathan, being a very clever man, knew it was no use challenging David directly. So he said, King, I've got something to tell you. Something terrible has happened. You know, there's a man there, he said, who's got a number of sheep. And there's another little man who'd got just one pet lamb. And some friends came to visit this wealthy man. And instead of killing one of his own, you know he actually took the pet lamb of that little man and gave it there as a feast to this friend who'd called on him. What a terrible thing, said David. Look here, get hold of that man. We must punish him in the most condign manner. This thing is unthinkable. David saw the thing very plainly and clearly when it was put in terms of sheep and what another man had done, and then Nathan the prophet said unto him, Thou art the man, that's precisely what you did when you took Bathsheba to yourself. Oh, but my dear friends, you see, this is the thing we won't do. As these people never looked at themselves. They said, it's there, it's the lack of flesh. It's outside us, it's environment. They were all right. They were not having a chance. Circumstances were not being kind to them. And so I say the world today evades the real problem, which is in us. It is our rebellion against God. It is our coveting. It is our lusting. It's this evil that sin has produced in our minds. Here it is laid open before us. And then the next step is this, of course. It invariably leads to ingratitude towards God. Look at these wretched children of Israel. Here they are. Do they praise God if they'd gone to God and said, Well, oh God, you were very kind to us when you brought us out of Egypt? And you've conquered our enemies and you've brought us through the Red Sea and we are free men. But you know, we're getting a little bit tired of the manna, Uh, can't you graciously? Not a word of praise, not of thanksgiving. As if God had never done anything for them at all. They just say, this is too bad. Nothing but this manna, who will give us flesh to eat? Not a syllable of thanksgiving. Not a word of praise to God. Isn't that mankind in sin? You let a war come. And you'll find people who never mention the name of God saying, if there is a God, why does he allow this sort of thing? Or they'll say, look at that spastic child. Is that your God? Men and women talk about God only to complain against him. Never a word of thanks. The base ingratitude of sin. Have you ever thought of that, my friend? You see, these children of Israel forgot all about the goodness. They forgot all about the blessings. And subject as they were to the lust, and thinking only for the moment, and forgetting the past, They blame God and express this complaint. But what of you, my friend? What of you? Do you count your blessings? Do you thank God for his goodness? Do you know that it's God who's given you life and the health that you've enjoyed and food and clothing and strength? And all the best and the most glorious things in life, God-ordained matrimony, And the home and the family, these are not human inventions. Men haven't created these institutions. It's God. They're all the free gifts of God. And he showers upon these things upon us day by day. The rain and the sunshine. Do you know if he withheld them, the world would starve. They're all the gifts of God. And all the blessings you enjoy. When did you last thank him? Oh, the base. In gratitude of sin. And that leads to the last thing, which is this. This whole attitude to God, of course, ever leads to the materialistic outlook. They said, if only somebody gave us flesh, all would be well. That's the one thing that's needed. Flesh to eat. Materialism. I leave you to work it out for yourselves. But isn't it a terrible and an appalling thing to realize that there are people who quite honestly think and believe that if only they had plenty of money to buy themselves a house and a motor car and a television and various other things, that they'd be perfectly and completely happy. Isn't the impression being given that the real needs of men are all material? And if only we can have safety and security, don't misunderstand me. Yes, but I say, if you begin to live on them, if you say that's all, if you say if only we had these, then all will be well, I say that's the road to hell. And that is why that last hymn we sang was so perfectly right and so perfectly true. We ought to thank God that thorns and briars remain in life to remind us that this isn't the only world and that man liveth not by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you really believe that if you could wave or somebody else could wave a magic wand and give you all this money, what if you won that football pool after all and got your 75,000, would all be well? Is that really enough for men? Can men be satisfied merely by material things at their best and their highest? Oh, that's the tragedy, you see, of men in sin. Having left God and having believed the lie, he's got his whole view of life all wrong. It's all askew. And therefore his diagnosis is wrong. He thinks he knows his need. And that's it, materialistic. If only flesh. And thereby, I say, he betrays his ignorance of the running sore of his soul, the disease of his spirit. He doesn't know that if you made him a multimillionaire, he'd still be miserable. There'd still be something he hasn't got, something he still wants. If he has everything, all the flesh of the universe, there would still be a lack and a need. Why? Well, because he's made for God and nothing less can satisfy him. But there he is. Weeping and miserable and unhappy and sorry for himself and commiserating with himself for the hard time he is having and excusing himself and not realizing the truth about himself. What can be done with him? What does he deserve? What's your verdict on him as you look at him there in the children of Israel? Does he deserve anything but punishment and hell? I say he doesn't. And I say the same thing about myself and about the whole of mankind. We've all rebelled against God, we've spurned his vice. We've believed the lie, the insinuation of the devil against him. We've ridiculed his way of life. We've turned our backs upon it. We've brought our misery upon ourselves and then we turn round and blame God. We are crabs. We are useless. We are worthless. We deserve nothing but hell and perdition. What can be done for him, I ask? Is there any hope for him? Well, it's my privilege to tell you again That there's only one hope for such a cad, such a creature. And it isn't in him himself. It isn't in his world. There's only one hope for him. And that is the God whom he's offended. The great and glorious God with his eternal heart of love who after men had believed the lie and had admitted this hatred of God into his heart and had begun to complain about the paradise in which he'd been placed, the God who after that even, after it all came down to them and not only announced the punishment to them, he did announce it, don't forget it, but also announced and promised The way of deliverance and of salvation. There is only one hope for men in sin and it's this. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet without strength. While we were enemies against God. In that wretched, foolish, mad position. God sent his son to die even for us there. Christ died for the ungodly. His pure body was broken. His blood was shed. He suffered the agony of the garden of Gethsemane. He suffered the agony of the cross. All for you and for me, rebels as we are, fools as we are, Cads as we are. He died for us. Suffered all for us and for our sins. God sent him to do it. In order that we might be pardoned and forgiven. In order that we might be given a new heart and a new nature and a new outlook. In order that with this new nature and this new outlook we might not only desire God and enjoy Him, but enjoy His way of life and thank Him and follow His Son and go after Him, come what may, through the wilderness of life, through death itself. Our only desire now being to know Him and to please Him in all things. Oh, my dear friend, have you believed the lie? If you have, go and confess it to God immediately. Cast yourself at his feet, as it were. Acknowledge your sin, your stupidity, the enormity, the arrogance, the rebellion of it all. Go to him. Repent. And believe him when he tells you that he sent his son to die for you. And that as the father of the prodigal received that foolish boy back again and ran to meet him and embraced him and put upon him this gorgeous robe, so God will receive you and adopt you into his family and begin to shower his blessings upon you. Go to him. Amen.